Hello, and a warm welcome to my Asthma Spotlight podcast. I'm Dr. Mark Levy. I'm a family doctor with a special interest in asthma. My aim is to help people with asthma and also their caregivers to understand more about this disease and how to stay safe. I will share lots of information about asthma. However, I will not be able to answer any personal medical questions for which you should really consult your own doctor. The opinions I express in the Asthma Spotlight podcast are my own and they are not intended as and shall not be understood or construed as medical, health or professional advice of any kind. Please do see the disclaimer details in the podcast description. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. So, um, welcome to this week's uh, episode of the Asthma Spotlight podcast. And today, um, I wanted to focus particularly on asthma attacks, which are both dangerous and very frightening, especially for children and parents of children with asthma. But sadly, they're not taken very seriously by many people with asthma, and they're also not taken very seriously by many healthcare professionals. And so today, it's my great pleasure to be joined by two um, people who are specialists in their own fields in asthma in Northern Ireland. And um, I invited them because I read a fantastic paper that they'd both been involved in, some fantastic work that they did, which really helped to address the issue related to asthma attacks. And one of the big issues was really follow up to try and prevent another one. So um, I'm joined by Leslie Kennedy and Mike Shields. And so welcome to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Yep. So would you like to introduce yourself? So let's start with Leslie. Hi, my name is Leslie Kennedy. I'm a, a pediatric or children's asthma and allergy nurse specialist. 
based in the Northern Trust in Northern Ireland. Um, previous to this, I worked in our tertiary centre in Belfast, but I've had an interest in asthma for many, many years. I also sit as chair of the National Paediatric Respiratory and Allergy Nurses Network Group. So asthma is really something that I'm very passionate about. Thanks, Leslie. And, and Mike? Hi, I'm Mike Shields. I'm a recently retired uh, consultant paediatrician uh, in respiratory medicine at the Children's Hospital in Belfast. And also I was professor of child health at Queen's University Belfast. And I, over the last 30 or 40 years, set up children's respiratory services in Northern Ireland with a special emphasis on uh, uh, asthma and difficult asthma. Thanks. So welcome, both of you. So um, could you could you start by describing for our listeners what the situation is regarding asthma in Northern Ireland? And again, so Leslie, if you'd like to start on that. Well, I think in Northern Ireland, it's like most of the UK since COVID, we've seen a massive increase in the number of patients being referred through the ED departments and the acute setting of the ward. Um, who then eventually come through to myself in clinic. I think numbers are definitely rising. I think people are becoming a little bit more aware of the issues if their child is wheezing. But I'm not 100% sure that our services are meeting that need. And I think it's the same throughout the whole of the UK, mainly because of financial restrictions and just that there's no capacity or people who have been trained specially to deal with that situation. I'm not sure, Mike, if you would agree with that or... Yeah, um, over many years, I've noticed um, uh, sort of what's good in Northern Ireland and what's bad. And certainly Asthma UK, the charity, does an annual sur survey. And Northern Ireland has always come up on the top of the four nations in terms of the number of people that report that they have the basics of asthma care uh, given to them. Uh, however, the sad thing about that is, although we may be best, it's still less than 50% of people um, with asthma actually are getting uh, a, a program of asthma education and training. So most people, in fact, more than 50% children and adults in Northern Ireland are not being given uh, the basics of asthma care in order to try and prevent a future acute asthma attack. And so um, is, is the situation there the same as the rest of the UK where asthma care is, is delegated mainly to those in primary care and even then to people without adequate training in asthma? Yes, I think, yes, I think um, definitely primary care. The expectation is that primary care will manage a lot of the asthmatics within the community. Um, it's the same as the rest of the UK. And, and again, the training is not foremost and practice nurses do the best they can, but they can't be experts in everything. Um, and I think a lot of them are very adult orientated. So when it comes to children's asthma, they're unsure um, about what way to proceed with different inhalers. Some of them are very good and have done training and know where to go to ask for advice. But I think it's similar to the rest of the UK. And as Mike has said, you know, asthma, Lung UK published statistics in 2021 um, and every 20 minutes a child's being admitted in the UK to a hospital with an acute asthma attack, which obviously we would love to see reduced, but that all comes with preventative treatment. 
And Mike, what about um, hospital provision of asthma care? Um, I'm, I'm aware that um, there's certainly a shortage of specialist respiratory pediatricians or pediatricians with a, a special interest or special expertise in asthma. And so how, how have you dealt with that in your, in your work, in particular in dealing with um, pediatric general generalists who may not be um, as aware of what's needed in people with asthma? Yep, I think what we have done over the many years we've audited uh, within hospital the acute um, care, the acute asthma care, so how well are children who are admitted managed? And overall, we do very well, and that's all the district general hospitals uh, and the children's hospital for the acute care. But where the big problem has been is the discharge. Uh, they've been sent home because children are now sent home very quickly. So you come in, very, a child very breathless and wheezing. But as soon as they're out of oxygen, they're virtually sent home. Uh, and what we were very poor at was actually putting in place a program to try and prevent a future admission. And the other thing that we found was uh, for every um, 10 children, uh, for every one child that was admitted to hospital, 10 children were appearing recurrently at the ED department for crisis management. So they weren't severe enough to need admitted, but they had an asthma attack that um, required them to come to the ED department. They were treated and then sent home. And largely they were being sent home uh, to be seen by the GP. But we find that um, very few of them actually ever went to the GP, even though they were told to. Most of them never actually saw the GP. So we felt that that was a big area. Uh, and I, I suspect it's the same throughout the whole of the UK. That interface between the hospital, particularly the ED department, and G general practice. Yeah, that's, that brings us very nicely to the work that you did. Because um, as you say, um, there's an expectation that the GP or, or the nurse in general practice is going to take over the care of the patient when they've been discharged home. And sadly, um, like you say, many people don't attend. And it comes back to the point that I made earlier, that asthma attacks are not taken seriously enough, both by parents or by um, doctors. Can you talk a bit about what you did? I mean, this was the Children's Safe Asthma Discharge um, Pathway, which um, you developed. How did you set it up? And um, then um, what were what were you aiming to achieve? Well, I'll talk about how we set it up and Leslie can talk about how it was delivered as she was largely the person delivering it. But um, we'd become over the years very concerned about the number of children attending the ED department, but not, um, not being admitted, but not having any, um, been put on any asthma preventers, i.e. trying to prevent an, a future attack. And we were very aware that an acute attack of asthma is actually a very good predictor of a future attack. So it was a real window of opportunity uh, to um, uh, uh, try and get that as an entry point to uh, a program of asthma care. So I, along with a colleague from a district general hospital, approached the um, Department of Health. Uh, they were going to try and do, uh, in the particular year we went, uh, two care pathways, and ours was one that was picked. And uh, so we had a, a series of meetings with um, people with asthma, uh, asthma nurses, 
the ED consultants from Children's Hospital, Primary Care, we all met together and decided that uh, how we were going to design this uh, care pathway. And one of the striking things that I can remember uh, really coming from the, the patients and parents, uh, there were several uh, there, they wanted it done properly and with no um, concessions to, to corner cutting corners and doing it doing it uh, uh, not so well. And uh, so what we set, set up was we were going to see children. We planned to see them between one and two weeks uh, uh, following discharge from the ED department. And we had to firstly have a safe mechanism so that um, they, uh, they wouldn't um, pitch back um, within a day or two back to the ED department. Uh, so we created a, a, an immediate safe asthma discharge pro forma, which was given to the parents, uh, to the doctors, and was also the, um, that was the, it, it was stored, and the asthma nurse would then come and collect it. This was so information, she, information which um, you shared with the, uh, the general practitioners. Yes, it was shared with the general practitioner, the patient, uh, it was put in the patient's notes from the ED, and it also was put into a box. And Leslie would have gone round each day and collected all the all the ones that were there. And the aim of that, we explained uh, that they needed to take their the patient needed to take their blue bronchodilator reliever uh, uh, until they'd stopped feeling tight and wheezy completely. And also, they had to finish their course of oral oral prednisolone. Was typically a three-day course, and during our study, we had we actually changed to a single dose of instead of prednisolone, it changed to dexamethasone. So it was a single dose that was actually given in the ED department that then made it made things easier. Uh, and then Leslie would uh, the asthma nurse would collect the patients, and we had a system uh, whereby we made sure that the patient knew they were going to be called to come to a clinic. So um, it wasn't just out of the blue and unexpected. They knew that was going to happen within one to two weeks. And uh, an appointment was then arranged. And uh, obviously, if they there was a few didn't come, Leslie would have phoned them up and got them to come. And uh, so that was the getting the people entering into the care pathway. So it was following an acute attack when there was obviously some degree of anxiety. We wanted it to be at least one week later so that most uh, children would be over their acute attack, uh, but not more than two to three weeks because our previous audit had shown if you wait four plus weeks, a lot of patients then uh, don't attend because uh, obviously the worry and anxiety of that acute attack has now faded. So that was our timing of it. And then the second point was, uh, what was, was the nurse going to do in an asthma uh, program of care? And um, the, first, the first two things were it was going to be based on the personalized asthma action plan and also making sure um, that people, uh, children were trained, what I'm going to call trained to mastery of their inhaler technique. And that did not mean just simply being shown how to use their inhaler. It was understanding why they took each step. They could teach that back to the nurse and also demonstrate it, that they could do it back before they could leave the clinic. We were also aware 
that they needed to do that with the personalized action plan. So they needed to be able to describe when they're well, i.e. in the green zone, what do you take uh, when you're well, i.e. you take your preventer regularly, then what would you do at the amber zone, at the first sign that things are starting to deteriorate, maybe with a head cold, um, what do you do to try and see if you could um, stop it? And th thirdly, and most importantly, the red zone, what to do if you're in, an, in, in the middle of an acute attack of asthma and are maybe becoming very breathless and can't speak, uh, how can you help somebody or what do you, what do you actually do? So we made sure that they could use that using the teach back that they could describe each of those zones back to um, the asthma nurse. And the third thing we wanted was um, that there were three visits in quick succession. So three visits within um, sort of eight to nine weeks. And the reason being for that is there's now there's quite a lot of evidence that good inhaler technique and understanding decays over a period of three to four weeks. Uh, and that you need to reinforce it fairly rapidly. So we decided that we would use three to we would have three visits, and then at the end of that, the asthma nurse would decide if the child, the person with asthma, was well controlled, they could go back to primary care, and if they weren't well controlled, more visits, or if they needed more more education or more training, uh, further visits were um, were uh, put put in place. So let Leslie can actually probably describe to you the actual nuts and bolts because she was doing it. Before I ask Leslie to explain what happens next, so um, what what you've really demonstrated is a, a fantastic approach which actually applies evidence that we're aware that works and also a very thoughtful approach to try and make sure that the needs of the patients, the needs of the children and the families are addressed because um, from what you're saying, before a child left hospital after having an acute asthma attack, they were able to use their inhaler. Somebody made sure they're able to use their inhaler. And they also understood their self-management plan. So they knew when to call for help if things went wrong. And um, these are two very, very important things that don't often get addressed. And then thirdly, you made sure that before discharging these children to primary care, that they'd seen a nurse specialist who made sure that they were well controlled. Leslie, if you can carry on and tell us how you managed to um, actually contact these patients and get them to attend, um, because that's always been a challenge for many people. So the first thing we had to do, obviously, was I suppose it was one of the issues was getting a, a room that we could use for our clinics. So we did that. And then we had to be guaranteed time. So we got 40 to 45 minutes for a new patient and 30 minutes for every review patient, which gives us the time to do everything that we need to do and take an adequate history. Um, the patients who came in as inpatients would have been seen on the ward. And at that stage, we would have gone through history, et cetera, with those patients. So they were leaving the ward, having had really an initial interview with um, an asthma nurse specialist. Again, it was putting the essentials in place, which was inhaler technique, talking about adherence to their preventative treatment, talking about daily management and what to do, especially what to do if their symptoms did get worse. Because we couldn't be within the ED department, um, there was a performa developed whereby it was all written down and um, it was up to myself to go down and train 
the staff in the ED department to ensure that they knew what to do. And and the capture there were the ED nurses because they were the, the constant within an ED department to be able to point locum doctors and new staff, etc., to the safe asthma discharge pathway. So they would have gone through, the doctors would have gone through the performa and the nurses would have checked inhaler technique because that has was something they were trained to be able to do as well. So I suppose it really was, it is a, a team effort. Then those patients obviously knew that they were going to be recalled because the AD staff would have said, this is now you're going to get uh, an appointment sent out. We are seeing them within um, two weeks. So we had a secretary who then sent out appointments to the patient um, with a number that they could contact if they had to con- if they had to cancel or rebook. And then they came along to clinic. And as Mike has already said, if they didn't come, then we contacted them to see why and explain that it was important for them to come to get these things all sorted out um, with their child. I think because a lot of people do, um, in spite of the fact that it is a breathing condition and that being able to breathe is essential for life, I think a lot of people underestimate asthma and don't realise that it can really be very severe and can be life-threatening um, if it's not managed properly and if preventative treatment is not taken. So a lot of those patients came back and when we audited um, the safe asthma discharge pathway, we looked at 81 patients, the first 81 patients who'd come through. And all of those patients attended at least once to the clinic to have those essentials put into place. During our clinic, we would have carried out spirometry if necessary, we would have carried out, um, which would look at their how their lungs were working, basically. And we looked at what we call fractional exhaled nitric oxide or pheno. And that was looking at um, degrees of inflammation. But the main crux of the whole thing was history, triggers and bringing that, talking about that again and again and talking about adherence to treatment and healer technique. And as Mike has said, we embed everything throughout the consultation. So it's not a case of just showing the patient what they're meant to do. The patient had to, to the patient and parents would have talked back and we would have checked that they really understood the personalised asthma action plan, which was written out with them there in clinic, and that they understood their inhaler technique and that they understood when they should take the preventative treatment. And so many times parents have said to me, nobody has ever told me what I was meant to do and nobody ever showed me the difference between my inhalers. So, of course, they were using the relief inhaler because they felt that it worked or their child felt it worked because they didn't realise that the preventative inhaler was something that was important and it didn't give them any uh, particular feeling when they took it. So again, we felt that that was important in clinic adherence to treatment as well and telling them how to know when their inhaler was empty or how to work out when their inhalers were empty um, was another big thing and how to get repeat prescriptions. What what a lot of healthcare professionals say is that they, they don't really have time to do all of this. And um uh, how how were you able to secure that time? Because these people were all being seen, these children were all being seen by specialist respiratory nurses. Um, was that all you or did you have other people who helped? There were other nurses on the team. So we had the equivalent of two, we, two, the equivalent of two whole time specialist nurses working. And over the space of a week, we would have had about six clinics which were nurse-led between us all. We also would have done uh, clinics alongside the consultants, whereby we again would have would have been checking and helping patients demonstrate correct inhaler technique. Those were both um, based within the hospital and within the community, in the in the community centres. So 
it was busy, but it's doable. But that was our job as well as a little bit of allergy alongside that. Okay. And so um, what's also fascinating is that all of these children came back at least once. And um, what, what was the secret? And um, so really for parents and for healthcare professionals that listen to the podcast, what would you say was the most important thing that ensured that people did come back? I mean, did you scare the hell out of the par- parents or what did you do? No, I think any parent who has had a child who's, who has experienced an asthma attack or an exacerbation of their symptoms, it is very frightening. And I always would say to parents, you know, your child will do their best until they can't. And that is really frightening. So it's about education. So when we would have phoned them up, we'd have said, look, your child has already been in acutely. And really, this would benefit them to try and prevent them having to, to, to be back in hospital again, you know, which obviously causes disruption to families. It just causes disruption to child education, sleep. And there's a fear. And I think probably because of media now and because parents are more reading on um, internet, they see that there are those dangers for children who have asthma attacks. And in some cases, they're seeking that help. But for most of the patients, parents, whenever we would have initially contacted them, if they hadn't come, they were quite happy to come again because they knew that that was a way of preventing any further admissions because that's disruption to a child and to try and prevent sleepless nights. Because I think parents, especially again, I feel since COVID, children seem to be be, um, having a more severe response to viruses that are throughout the winter months. And parents want to do all they can to try and prevent that disruption to a child's life and that danger to a child who's not able to breathe. So that was how I suppose they just came back, maybe just because we were very nice to them on the phone. But there were no incentives. They just had to come back and bring their child well, with we, them. We did make it clear, though, on the, pro, the wee pro forma that the patient got from the ED that I think at the top of it, it said asthma can asthma kill. Asthma can kill, yeah. And we made them quite aware of that. And the, the reason we were bringing them back to this clinic, this special clinic, was to try and reduce their chances of having another asthma attack in the future. Did, did people um, comment on that? Did parents comment on that uh, comment on the top of the of the information that they were given? Um, nobody has ever complained about it. I think it has yeah. made them more. I think it has made people more aware. I think it's important, and I think as I you agree. know, from being involved in the National Review of Asthma Deaths, which is really what has triggered off a lot of the work that we've done in Northern Ireland, yeah. um, that this is something that you can't take lightly, and a lot of parents do not know that asthma can kill and a lot of young people and teenagers are not aware that asthma can kill so they are oblivious to that and then once that is flagged up to them they realize that then yes this is something that we do need to really kind of focus on and a lot of the treatments are so easily accessible and so easy to take that it's an easy preventative of the danger that's very interesting because i mean to be honest that's always been my approach as well is to explain very clearly to parents and people who don't take medication regularly or who don't attend for uh, reviews. I always lay it on the line and say what the risks are, really. But um, as as uh, we're all aware, asthma deaths are really um, not that common. The tragedy is that most of them are preventable. And so um, we come on to the next section. This is really something that's really important for both parents and also for healthcare providers and doctors who 
um, think that it it might not be worth investing money or funding or time in doing the kind of work that you've done. So can you talk about the the results of this work um, in terms of um, uh, what's happened for people with asthma, but also in terms of workload for the healthcare professionals? How, how did this help? Well, I, I'll give the results and then you can, Leslie, talk about the workload. Um, in, what we did was um, Northern Ireland has a very good uh, electronic care record. Um, so all GP attendances out of ours is all recorded and we can get that electronically. So we got permission uh, as a service development to to look at the one year before the the, people, the children, the asthmatics that, that were in our study. Uh, how often did they go to their GP? How often did they need oral steroid rescue medicine? How often did they come to out of hours? How often did they come to ED? And how often did they um, need admitted? And by definition, these were children who had come to the ED or been admitted. So they and and had been more than than had it two two attendances in the previous six months. So um, we then looked at at the end of the program when they'd. Um, been been to Leslie's clinic for uh, maybe eight weeks or so, and were, was discharged. We put that. At, we looked at the year following that, and how often did they um, need oral corticosteroid rescue, attend EDs out of hours, or be admitted? And there was dramatic reductions in that, um, uh, very very statistically significant reductions. And in fact, most people, I think 75 plus percent had none of these, no oral corticosteroids, no attendances at the ED department, no admissions, no out of hours, and um, which was what we were trying to achieve for that high risk group. And the other thing that we did notice, because using the electronic care record, we are able to pick up how many um, refills do the people with asthma collect so that's a good well it's not it's not not as an excellent but it's a general monitor of uh, uh, how often you're using your inhaler so if you're not picking up refills uh, it usually means that you're 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 not taking your inhaler every day your preventer uh, and that would be something we would routinely look at in the clinic so when somebody's referred to the clinic we would look and see um, are they actually getting refills? Are they taking their uh, preventer? So we looked at that the year before and the year after. And the year before, uh, the figures were appalling in that um, about 40, 40, 45% of, of the children were taking about 50% of the doses, about half the doses they should. Uh, and only 4% of children were taking more than 80% of the dose. Uh, which generally speaking, you need to take somewhere between 80, 40 and 50 and 80% of the dose to be getting benefit. Um, and then at the end, when we looked at one year later, the good news was 96% uh, of people had taken their preventer more than 50% of the time, more than half the time, uh, although only 41% were taking it more than 80%. But the bulk of the uh, the bulk of the adherence had 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 vastly improved, uh, where most people were taking it uh, more than fifty per more than half the doses, which uh, I'm sure. And we also know they were then taking it correctly, 
So they were using correct inhaler technique and uh, using it much more frequently than before. So we felt that was what was probably caused it, the, the benefit, the beneficial effects. Yeah. And so these children had fewer attacks. They had fewer um, courses of oral corticosteroids and they were collecting their medication, um, which is a wonderful outcome. And the point being that, as you say, if they're taking preventive medication and if they're using their inhaler correctly, there's a good chance they're not going to have another attack. Yeah, correct. This is what I was referring to in terms of workload for managers, because the benefits are really that there's reduced workload for healthcare professionals and also reduced cost for the health service and um, great benefit for the families. And um, so, Leslie, do you want to add anything to what Mike has said about that? Well, I suppose, I mean, data shows that asthma attacks cost, and that's adults and children cost, more than a billion pounds to the health service UK-wide. So any reduction in those attendances acutely will be much appreciated. Um, our, when we had all our data put together, obviously we presented it at various different events. And at one of the meetings, our public health authority um, spoke afterwards to us and asked if they could consider doing it as a regional initiative. So throughout Northern Ireland now, there should be an initiative where any child who's admitted acutely and we have asthma nurses and specialist asthma nurses in all district general hospitals and the tertiary centre who will follow up those children the same way as we started off doing it in Belfast. Um, but I suppose, again, it's it's having the, the data there to show because a lot of things you, you may know in your head that that, that is should work but if you don't have the data to back that up it's very hard to get funding to encourage that to go through and promote it to go through um and i suppose now our our public health authority and our, and our boards are asking so how can we prevent them coming to casualty in the first place so that's probably the next step that's next step forward we'll be looking at initiatives and i do know there are some good initiatives out there whereby you can start to use um get into primary care and hopefully start to reduce it from that level as opposed to letting them actually come to casualty or onto the into the wards as acute admissions and if we could prevent that it would be just amazing but i think the key out of everything is maintenance of treatment and if children continue to take their treatment that they've been prescribed as their preventative treatment, it should, in most occasions, prevent any acute asthma attacks. And if parents know what to do when their child's unwell, then again, that is very integral in helping to prevent asthma attacks, asthma deaths and acute admissions. And so how widely has this been rolled out? So it's the region, wouldn't you agree, Mike? It's the regional initiative. Yeah, it's it's Northern the Ireland. Department of Health wanted it rolled out in all, um, all of Northern Ireland into ch ch any unit that looks after children, and they were also considering it for um, the adults uh, service as well. The problem, the, I mean, the, the plan was just before COVID, this was going to be rolled out. Then COVID happened, and the staff were all removed. And in fact, during COVID, I don't think there were many asthma attacks because we were all distancing ourselves and isolating. Uh, uh, but, um, and I think they're, they're obviously two years later, I've retired, so I don't really know now, 
But um, I suspect there are going to be challenges to get it ruled out properly. And one of the things that most frustrates me is some of my pediatric colleagues say, well, if you only saw people once and just showed them their inhaler, at least they'll be getting that. And um, you'll be able, the nurses will be able to see far more patients. But I just go back to what they the, the the parents and children with asthma said they wanted it done properly so that this group of people would have mastered all the skills. And as you know, uh, Mark, if you just show somebody uh, how to use their inhaler that night, about 10 to 30 percent can do it and the remainder can't. Yeah. yeah and I, I suppose the, the difficulty that I have really, and I, I did an interview with Richard Beasley on on Monday and or a few days ago, and um, what he's saying really is that we've got the evidence, and now you guys have clearly demonstrated a system that works. So we've got evidence that it works, and why on earth, if if we believe in evidence based medicine, why on earth isn't something like this rolled out very widely? And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you both because. I, I can't see any obvious reason why this shouldn't be rolled out in the whole country, really. Um, we've got so many children, as you said, Leslie, having asthma attacks. And, um, you know, one attack is too many for a child, really, and we need to try and prevent future attacks. So um, this is really a fascinating um, program, and I'm hoping that um, it, it will be rolled out and that um, you know, both uh, health authorities throughout the whole of the UK will do something about that. So is there anything extra that either of you would like to add about children's asthma management that you'd like to see happening in the UK? One, one thing I think is important, patients and parents coming to me when I was a paediatrician and pushing me, why can we not do this? Can we not do that? I would really stress if you've got asthma, I would want to make sure, I, firstly, you've got, you see a specialist, and it could be in primary care, particularly an asthma nurse, and that she has one, she has time to talk to you, that she can go over uh, and make sure you have mastered your inhaler and that you have mastered the written management plan, which is it's really supported self-care, that you have mastered them, you know how to do it, you know how to take your inhaler correctly, you know what to take and when, and uh, I think that just is not happening. But if patients demand it, if people with asthma are demanding it, it eventually will happen. Yes, so I would agree with that as well. Um, don't just assume if you're at an appointment that when you see it being done that you can do it when you leave. Um, because quite often it's like anything you you may not be able to do it, especially if your inhaler, if your child's inhaler has changed. And I think that's where face to face reviews are very good, because at least then the practice nurse or whoever's doing an annual review can then watch as your child demonstrates this back to them and make sure that they're actually using the right device, that they're using it correctly. And then that you know when they should be using it, how often they should be using it in a day when it's empty and that you can follow that written personalized asthma action plan. Um, there are amazing, there are videos that have been done by Asthma Lung UK that you can access online. And there are so many different websites now where you can go to, to, to just to look things up and to get a wee bit more information. That is so important. So if you don't understand, speak to somebody who can help you. 
Um, and then again, if you were using a lot of your reliever, that that's the time, or if your child's using an awful lot of the reliever in the week, that they need to go and maybe get assessed by the practice nurse, or you need to speak to somebody because we have tried to reduce the use of reliever medication to um, as and when required. But if you're needing to use a lot of relief, um, if you're using it three times, more than three times acutely in a week for symptoms, then it's maybe time to get somebody to go through your, your treatment plan with you again and to just do another bit of an assessment. And the other thing I would advise parents is never worry about getting help if you're worried about your child's breathing, because if you access that help early, as I always say to my parents, I would rather you came to the ED department if you're worried about your child and their salbutamol is not working and that they see you and send you home within a few hours, then that your child comes in really unwell. So it's about getting that help quickly and not waiting until it's too late. So I think that's probably what my advice would be to parents and to ensure that they always have their inhalers, um, that they order them in good time so that they're not running out. There's some really nice, clear messages. And what about any any messages for decision makers? So for um, the healthcare managers, um, have you got any messages for them? No, well, we've been trying to get them to uh, to, to to implement and make sure they're rolling out our um, care pathway. And also we've been trying, we initially tried and the GPs were meant to be involved, but uh, there is one practice that has some excellent data where they got... Uh, everybody in one year that uh, had an acute episode came, got oral steroids, was in, went to ED, and uh, or uh, needed nebulized in their practice. They put them all onto a, a program, and the following year uh, they had nobody went to hospital. That's one practice. Yeah. So just taking taking the acute attacks. And using that as the point of entry and making sure uh, every everybody was properly educated, they then uh, reduced acute attacks in their in that one practice. It would be good to get back to face to face annual reviews instead of online or telephone annual reviews. Um, I don't really see how you can assess somebody's inhaler technique through an email. Um, and it's a tick box and do you know how to use your inhaler? Of course, the patient's going to tick yes. Um, so I think. That's another thing that we need to get back to as well as face-to-face -face reviews for these patients, these children and families where their children have asthma. I mean, my my take from what you guys have shown is um, it comes back to something that I've been shouting about for quite a long time, that I don't think an annual review is really appropriate in asthma because this is a disease that can flare up from minute to minute. And seeing somebody once a year on their birthday or before the payment comes in at the end of the year for general practitioners in the UK, in my view, is not very helpful. And you've shown so clearly that a review after an asthma attack is so valuable. And <clears throat> excuse me, I don't understand why um, the authorities like the Quality Outcomes Framework um, don't really mandate a post-attack review rather than an annual review, because that's the time that you're going to make a big difference. I think I would agree with you there as well. But um, and I know there is good work as well going on in the UK in some areas whereby the hospital based nurse specialist will go out and sit with the mm. practice nurse. And that's all done through a funding which has been agreed with the GPs and they are 
those practice nurses are guaranteed to have half an hour for appointments there with after that. So they've been shown to reduce acute admissions to hospital as well. But I I sometimes get suppose get frustrated myself because I think asthma is just seen as it's only just asthma and in inverted commas. Um, whereas we do know that asthma can kill, it can be a very serious disease. Yeah. And I think that's that's a good place for us to end this uh, discussion, which has been fascinating. So thank you both uh, very much for joining us today. And I'm hoping that you'll get some feedback. If I get any feedback, I'll pass it on to you. You'll probably get requests for more details about your program, if I'm not mistaken. So thank you both very much. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Thank you for listening to my podcast. If you found this helpful, and I hope you did, please click the like and the follow buttons and share this podcast. Please do send me any feedback or questions to my email address, asthmaspotlight at gmail.com, and I'll do my best to answer these in future episodes.